You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 237, Kristen Dumay and Knowing Christian History. It's so fascinating. Great conversation. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. Of course, I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I am glad that you are. I'm excited to have, we've got a great conversation today. If you have, if you listen to the show and you enjoy it and you want to just help keep us going, would you head over to halfwaytherepodcast.com, hit that Patreon button and support the show on a regular basis. You can do as little as $5 a month. Uh, or if you want to do a little more, I'll send you a Halfway There t-shirt. I'd love to do that. Usually I wear it uh, on on recording day, but today happens to be the day that pitchers and catchers are reporting and my St. Louis Cardinals got Nolan Arredondo, so I'm representing that. But you, I'll send you a T-shirt if you want it. Um, friends, this is going to be a great conversation. We have uh, today with us, she's the author of Jesus and John Wayne, a book that's sort of setting evangelicalism on fire, if I could say that. Our guest is Kristen Dumay. Kristen, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today. How do you feel about that characterization? I, I've seen this book a lot, right? I'm seeing it around. People are going, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I've experienced. What are you, how are you experiencing it? Yeah. I mean, the same. I, um, I've, I've been really astonished, honestly, the book published this past summer in June, 2020. And already that first week within days, I started getting letters from evangelicals themselves. Um, so many letters saying some version of this is the story of my life and then mm. giving uh, supportive uh, details and, and just showing how their own faith journeys, their own uh, lives have really mapped onto the bigger story that I tell in Jesus and John Wayne. And so it's, it's been a real privilege to be uh, invited into these conversations and to have a book that, that connects so um, viscerally, I think with so many people who have lived this story. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, we're going to talk all about that, I'm sure. I want to talk about your story. Where are you now? You're your professor and you're teaching history. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that and and yes. uh, kind of where you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. I've been here, I think, around 16 years now. So I came here right out of um, my undergrad or sorry, graduate school. Um, I went to the University of Notre Dame. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been uh, just just a history professor. This is my second book. My first was a history of Christian feminism and evangelical feminism and anti-trafficking activism. And uh, I attend a Christian reformed church here in Grand Rapids. And uh, yeah, so, so I guess pretty conventional. I grew up in a small town in Northwest Iowa in Sioux Center. And I uh, was always part of a, this kind of uh, ethnic subculture, Dutch reformed. My mom yeah. immigrated from the Netherlands. Um, my dad was uh, or is an uh, uh, ordained minister in the Christian reformed church, uh, was a theology professor at Dort University. Uh, so I grew up in that context. I went to Dort. Uh, so kind of one foot in broader ev- the broader evangelical world, but also uh, one foot very much out in terms of being part of this confessional, uh, ethnic, uh, reformed, uh, you know, Dutch community as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I have, I'm so interested in that. I'll tell you why. 
I grew up, so I, I told you I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Des Moines. And so when I was looking at colleges, Dort was one that I looked at, right? So um, Northwestern, which I don't think exists uh-huh. anymore, was in Orange City, also Dutch oh, Reformed. Is still it still there? there? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So, yeah, they uh, I had some friends who went there, um, which is which is cool. So. But like, so that, but that's all like Dutch reform kind of country, right? Like that's, that's what's going on over there. My family is from sort of Storm Lake and, and, uh, it was just a little further East. Right. But that's, that's uh, that's, that's, yeah, that is like, that's, I'm familiar with all that area. So I hear you talking about, I'm like, oh yeah, that I know. And I've, I know lots of people. So, okay. I know what it's like, but describe for us sort of growing up in a, in a Dutch reformed kind of family or kind of what, what that was like for your faith, just personally. It was, uh, you know, I didn't really know any differently. It was, I think, I sure. think many of us kind of grew up and, and, uh, you know, we just understand our own, uh, kind of unique brand of Christianity as just plain old Christianity. And so I grew up, you know, thinking that I happened by the grace of God to be situated in the best Christian tradition, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, reformed Christianity, what I learned, uh, from childhood on up was the best uh, kind of Christianity, it had the best answers, right? the best intellectual tradition and the truest kind of uh, faith tradition. And uh, so I definitely believed that uh, growing up. And again, my, my dad was a, um, a CRC pastor and theology professor and, you know, uh, just a, a real kind of leader in the local faith community. And so that was my world kind of structured and uh, very solid. And if I had any answer, I knew I could go to him and get the right answer uh, and, and then be good with that. Um, so, it, you know, it was very supportive. It was um, very cohesive. It was not a very diverse town when I lived there. Since then, uh, uh, Sioux Center has seen waves of um, Hispanic immigration. And so now it's a much more diverse community. Uh, at the time I lived there, it was not. Uh, so it was just, I, I guess, kind of isolated, but um, nurturing uh, in terms of faith formation. It wasn't really until my family moved away just for a couple of years when I was in high school because my dad went on for a PhD at um, Florida State University. And so we uprooted just for a couple of years and moved to Tallahassee, Florida. And very quickly, I learned uh, the extent of my isolation up to that point. Because when I would meet people, I went to a large public school. Up until then, I had only attended Christian schools. And I quickly learned that nobody had ever heard of Christian reformed <laughs> anything. Yeah, right. You know, I, and I maybe I'd say, well, it's kind of like Presbyterian. That might mean something. Or just you don't have to be content with Protestant. Um, and then when they learned that I was Dutch, you know, they just thought that was the coolest thing. Whereas for me, that everybody I knew had was Dutch <laughs> growing up. And so it was a real kind of... Um, uh, important time for me to be around people of all sorts of, uh, you know, racial um, identities, faith identities, ethnicities in a large public school and understand a little bit more who I was, um, where I had come from simply by stepping outside of that culture and community. Oh yeah. sounds like that opened your eyes a little bit. It did. And then, and then the next year uh, after, um, my family returned to Sioux Center. It was my senior year in high school, and I spent that year as an exchange student in Germany. Uh, so that did the same thing, I think, over again, you know, taking me out of American culture 
and, uh, and, and giving me the, this kind of external vantage point, not just on my own faith tradition, but now on my own kind of national formation as well. So I think those back-to-back experiences really uh, set me on the course to become a historian, for one thing, because yeah. it made me really curious about uh, American history, uh, American religious history, and the formation of our own identity and values. Oh, very interesting. Okay, well, that's that's fascinating. I love all that, and I, I agree. It definitely is like when you're when you're kind of like fish in water, right? You don't know what water is until you're like, oh, you jump out and you go, oh, what's that? Um, interesting. So. I'm curious, did you have, and I don't know if the Dutch Reformed tradition emphasizes this or not, but a lot of evangelical traditions do a kind of specific moment of giving your life to to Christ. Did you have that or what, what was that like for you? No, that's that's what's I think in some ways distinctive about uh-huh. you know, growing up in the Reformed tradition over against evangelicalism and and yeah, growing up I did not identify as an evangelical um, and and that was kind of one of the sticking points, right? This conversion experience, this born again experience. When I would again, you know, go to my dad for for all of the answers to life's questions and you know ask about that. Uh, you know, what is our, you know, do we have a born again moment? And is that what it takes to be a Christian? Uh, he would point me to uh, the moment of of Christ's death on the cross. That's when mm. I was saved, right? And so that's, yep. uh, it's not a decision in my life. It's it's the act of, of uh, you know, atonement and then resurrection that uh, is, is where my faith is founded. So, um, so no, I grew up um, in, in a Christian home, I grew up always, you know, being a Christian and don't have that kind of born again experience. You know, I did have, uh, a time in, uh, actually in, in college where, you know, made profession of faith, but by that, it, it seemed very uneventful, <laughs> anticlimactic. Cause it's like, what, what is this even marking? It just meant I could, I could take communion. Uh, and you know, I think there've been times since then that I've had to make uh, an intentional decision after, you know, periods of doubt or questioning, uh, no, this is my faith and I'm owning it. Uh, but, but not a, a, a kind of born again moment. Mm. Um, that's just not part of my, my um, background or my tradition. Yeah. See, I love that. So we hear a lot of those stories here, right? Like that's, that's kind of one of the things we're, we're looking for. My goal to show is to go beyond that, right? Cause it's, I grew up more on the Arminian side and where the testimony was, my life was terrible. Then I met Jesus. And now my life is great. Right. Yeah. Which is fine for, except for all the other things that happened. So I wanted to tell the whole story of all the other things that, of what walking with the Lord is like. Um, and I love that you, you shared that cause you're, so did you grow up with like sort of an election kind of a, kind oh, of a, yeah, yeah whole, whole yeah. thing, right? Destination election. Yep. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't something that really marked my, uh, my faith formation as a child, you know, it was more just Bible mm. stories and songs. And it was, it was, you know, when I got into high school and college in particular, where I learned more formal theology that I learned, this is how we make sense of things, you know, God's right. sovereignty. And, um, but even then it wasn't kind of hard core Calvinism as much as at least the professors who taught me the history of Calvinism uh, and theology were the kinder, gentler sort who, uh, who really distressed um, God's goodness and God's sovereignty and not the harsher, darker sides of Calvinism that I later encountered. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we'll find out about that. So we, we all do. That's such an interesting uh, lane. So, so you said in college, you kind of made like your own profession of faith. Was that was that just motivated by your kind of your 
like the tradition or was that, what was that like? Yeah, it was just because it needed to be done in some ways. Oh. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a rite of passage uh, in the Christian Reformed Church at some point. They, they um, don't, uh, it, it usually happens when you're in like upper middle school or maybe high school, at least back then. I think it's been moving younger and younger. Um, but during those years, we were away uh, in Florida and not members of a Christian Reformed Church. So it kind of got put on hold. I attended an Orthodox Presbyterian church then, and then I was away in Germany for a year. So it was, it just got d- kind of delayed. Uh, so again, it was, it wasn't a momentous thing as much as uh, just a, a formal step um, yeah. that, that needed to be done. What so then I'm curious, like in your own discipleship, what were some of the pivotal moments for you when you, you know, as you were growing kind of in those early years that made you kind of either dig in or, you know, experience God, maybe a time that you experienced God, something like that? I for me, the way that I'm wired, uh, my kind of spiritual experiences have all often been cultivated through reading. Uh, so just reading, uh, you know, f- formative books, uh, in, uh, in, in Christian history, I think, uh, you know, so I read, uh, Corey Ten Boom's work and, and, you know, saw kind of what her faith, uh, the, the courage that her faith, uh, gave her, um, you know, I, I read about Eric Liddell and I, this is funny. Like I haven't actually thought these thoughts. This is an interesting question for a long time. You know, what, what kind of inspired me as I was growing up and you can see why I kind of ended up as a historian. I, I was really interested in, in, in Christian witness, uh, in the cloud of witnesses, you know, like over time, um, and, and what that looks like. I think that, you know, moments of loss, um, uh, death of family members also was a, a time where I could really see that uh, you know, holding on to these truths that there was uh, life after death and seeing my parents kind of uh, their faithfulness testify to that. So uh, pretty conventional uh, life experiences. I, I think I'll also say that uh, when my faith uh, wavered more, it was in seeing professed Christians, self-professed Christians who are not living very Christianly. You know, I went to Christian schools and uh, in those contexts, it was often, at least in in my spaces, kind of the cool thing to be as unchristian as you could be and still get <laughs> away with it. And, uh, and that really changed when I went to a large public high school uh, in Florida, I think it had like 4,000 students. So it was a very large public high school. Wow. And, and that's when uh, I learned that, uh, I mean, you didn't have to say you're a Christian. Why would you, you know, why would you identify as a Christian? But if you did identify as a Christian, people expected you to behave like one and you'd get asked, wait, I thought you were a Christian. You know, like what, what is this? And it was actually just a, uh, just the right time, I think, for me while I was a, a high school student to leave the enclave of my Christian school, where, uh, you know, it was very uncool to be a Christian in some ways, because everybody was, uh, and to be in a space where uh, it meant something, and you didn't have to be, and you could really kind of uh, claim that and then live that out. Uh, so that that was um, probably a, a kind of formative experience. Yeah. But yeah, different moments throughout time where I've, I've thought, oh, you know, if my faith depended on, on how self-professed Christians are acting, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd abandon it. Um, but having <sighs> to find a center that was not, you know, people, and that was instead a truth that was outside of how any of us um, 
uh, respond to that truth. Yeah. Well, tell me about a time when that happened, when you were like, oh no, I don't want to be associated with those, with those people. Um, you know, I think there's just many, many examples of being in maybe a youth group where, uh, many of the student leaders, but also, you know, adult leaders were very cliquish and uh, not really attentive to the least of these, if we can put it that way. Uh, and, uh, and then as I got older in terms of behaviors, in terms of um, uh, seeing how, how a, a Christian faith could give cover for um, grasping at power, for you know, doing things purportedly in the name of Christ, but really just to um, to amass more power and more influence, and and just seeing how pernicious that was. Those are the kinds of moments that I think most led me to say, you know, do I even want? Do I even want a part in this? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, well, so would, have you had a period that you would call like a dark night of the soul, or kind of a kind of a season where you where you doubted it at all? Um. Just very briefly, I think in graduate school, um, mm. and and it wasn't. I, I don't think it was triggered by any one thing specifically at all. But yeah, I, I had I had a time where um, one summer where I just thought eh, I don't know about all this, and I uh, and just really um, just kind of discontented. I wasn't sure where that was going to lead. And uh, I don't know if this was a spiritual experience or what, but it, it felt like it at the, uh, at a certain point, kind of, I felt pushed to the limits and then was filled with a sense of, of enormous peace and, and contentment that um, wasn't really, I, I can't even describe in, in words. It just was a sense of presence. Uh, again, that, that uh, any reality that I was trying to defend or deny uh, was not dependent on my ability to defend or deny it, uh, that there was some, you know, a truth that was beyond me and, um, I could just kind of relax <laughs> and, 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 and go on with things. So I, I don't know, uh, that was, yeah, it was a time in graduate school. And, um, uh, I mean, since that time, haven't really had a crisis, but certainly a curiosity, a curiosity to continue to, explore the faith that uh, the beliefs that were handed to me, explore what I, um, you know, had long considered the essence of Christianity, explore how much of that was actually just shaped by culture, um, by loyalties, by my historical situation, and, and trying to understand you, what is the reality that is outside of all of those things? And I think that's a lifelong journey and I'm nowhere kind of <laughs> near finished with even addressing the questions are in front of me, but I'm also you're not in any hurry to try to, you know, work my way through them all in time. Yeah. That's interesting. Did, was that affected by kind of your, your emphasis on history and your interest in history? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because when you when you start studying history, you know, I, I wanted to become a religious historian, and, and my my working assumption was that you know Christianity is something that is constant through so much of of uh, you know world history um, for the last couple thousand years at least, and so. Uh, you know, I, I thought I can I can trace that tradition and I can identify with that and and celebrate that. And then, as a historian, when you look to the past, whether it's a century ago and certainly a few centuries ago, uh, 
you realize that things were really different back then. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm reading some of these, you know, writings from medieval women mystics. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what to do with this. Oh, yeah. Uh, you like, know, I, I visited like who? the... Well, go ahead. I visited the site of Lindisfarne right, in, in the UK and was ex expecting to experience this sense of continuity of, you know, these are my people. And instead, I just thought, whoa, you know, so, so much has changed. You know, I can't relate in any way. Um, and so, so history, what that has really taught me is, is how much change over time happens and uh, how much people's cultural circumstances do in fact shape their faith, their religious beliefs. And we can, uh, you know, any sense of a kind of continuity throughout history of, oh yeah, they're Christians just like us, that's my tradition. Much of that is, is a fiction. It, it's an imagined wow. kind of sense that if there is continuity, again, it, it's coming from the outside. It's coming from, okay, if I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is present through this all. And that's where the continuity is going to be because they understood the Bible in such different ways. They understood their Christian journey in such profoundly different ways because of how they were situated historically and culturally. And, and so, yeah, if anything, my historical studies uh, kind of disrupted this notion of of communion with um, fellow believers. Oh, that's interesting. Cause that was gonna be my next question. Okay. Cause that can be totally disruptive, right? It can be very disillusioning and um, disorienting. So how, is there an example of something that you thought was just like normal that you were like, that you realized, Oh, this is just Dutch reformed or this is just Northwest Iowa or whatever it is. And Maybe it's not as as historical as we'd like to believe. And then, how what effect did that have on you? Well, you know, one thing I think through history and experience, uh, th this question of biblical literalism, yeah. this idea of you know real Christians really uphold the authority of the scriptures, and by authority of the scriptures, what most people mean is kind of the literal interpretation of the scriptures. Now, when you push that a little bit, and you realize that we're all picking and choosing which passages and which verses, you know, even the, the most you know, literal believers are, are not going to apply every passage uh, literally. Um, so that introduces some interesting questions, but yeah, going back to kind of you know, medieval biblical interpretation too, and just realizing that our conception of biblical literalism is a wholly modern invention, right? It, it, it doesn't exist in the pre-modern era because that kind of thinking didn't exist in the pre-modern era. So something like that was really humbling for me because I had to then understand how my own view of scriptural authority was, you know, not necessarily right or wrong, but was only really possible um, to hold a view like that in the last, you know, three or 400 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So again, this, so this goes to like, it, that can kind of shake the foundations of your faith, right? I think a lot of people are wrestling with that very question right now where they're asking, wait, I've been told that the, everything's in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. Go to the Bible, 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 mm -hmm. to the point that I think some people even worship the Bible and they don't even know it, um, which disturbs me personally <laughs> as a, mm -hmm. I've got a degree right over here that's in biblical study. So I'm not like against the Bible, right? I know right, right. I've got an MDiv. I'm like, I'm all about it, but I also don't think we're doing it. I think there's some things like that that are wrong. And when I have these conversations with people, they get really concerned because all of a sudden it shifts the, like sand underneath their feet. How did that happen to you or how'd that? 
Yeah, not not so much. I think by that point, I was, uh, you know, because of my personal experiences of just, you know, being in different cultural locations, I had already become open to to the ways in which our uh, our values and our identities are shaped culturally, that it, it could add the historical layer without too much additional disruption. Um, and, and it just made me more curious about my own beliefs, right? My own, where, where things are coming from. Uh, and it, in, in some ways, it takes some of the pressure off. Uh, the pressure to always get the right answer and and to think that you have to keep pushing until you find that right answer. It's humbling to realize that the very best answers that we can come to today are still historically contingent. Like they're based on so many of our assumptions of, of what is true uh, right now. Uh, and again, this sounds, it can sound incredibly relativistic, but, but I find it uh, almost the opposite because if you're holding on so tightly to your narrow conception of truth, uh, that's a faith that can be easily shaken when you come up against some historical evidence wow. or a different, you know, biblical interpretation or, um, scientific evidence that kind of, it can shake you to your core. If that's where, uh, your faith was resting, if your faith is based on a reality that is, you know, greater than our understanding, uh, and the, that we understand the word of God is pointing us to that truth, but not as that truth itself, uh, it actually, I think takes a lot of the pressure off and, um, and can give a more kind of life-giving vibrant faith. Yes. Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. I'm I'm really I'm gonna have to sit with that for a while because I think you're totally right. There's a way that I mean, let's just we'll we'll go. We I haven't talked about it on the show yet, but we can go to the whole thing of apologetics, right? If our faith is in apologetics, yes. you might be really disturbed by some of the news about Ravi Zacharias that has come out yes. in the last few weeks, exactly. right? Or if your faith is in the God of the Bible, it's different, or the God just God. Jesus, then it's different. And it's not as you, you have more of a, a foundation for that. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I've never been an apologetics guy. Never, and that's just because I'm too emotional for that. But, <laughs> but it's, uh, but it's, I've, I'm seeing like, oh, maybe that's not so bad. Interesting. I think that's really fascinating. So for you, you said earlier, like you had to find a different kind of center of gravity for that. Um, maybe I used a different word, but what, what did you, what'd you end up with? Where'd you end up as you were kind of searching for that? Uh, so for me, just the the intellectual engagement side of my faith is, mm. is, is important. Uh, so, you know, reading theology, reading religious history, uh, uh, reading kind of um, religious literature has, has been, um, uh, it, it continues to be formative. Also, you know, experiencing God's creation, just, just, you know, nature and, and understanding kind of the vastness of this created world and our place in it, uh, those sorts of things. Um, I, I attend a Christian Reformed church that's very liturgical and music has always been uh, important to me. Uh, not so much the Christian contemporary music scene, but uh, a deeper kind of historical tradition of, um, of hymn singing and kind of gorgeous historical um, texts from centuries back, that, that sort of thing. And so I think a combination of all of these things, but, but being tied through my local church to a, a deeper kind of historic Christian faith, creeds, confessions, uh, that has always mm. been uh, grounding to me. And again, you know, holding those as I do as, as um, 
as kind of testimonies from the past. And so that I can say, yes, I affirm these same things, even if our worlds are so very different, even if maybe what we mean by these things or how we understand these things are so different, still rooting myself in that longer tradition is, is something that I do. And in my local churches is often a place where I do that. Oh yeah. I love that. I don't think tradition is well understood in American evangelicalism for sure. Right. Um, and I think we need that. One thing I love about our church, we, our church is kind of weird. We own a shopping center instead of a church building. And so we meet in there and we have a coffee shop and an early learning center. But one thing we did a couple of years ago that I loved is they put, I forget, I think the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed up on the wall, like big, mm-hmm. big letters. I was like, that's what we need. That's good. Cause yes. I'm guessing most people have no, I didn't even know they existed before. Right. <laughs> right. Before they started seeing them and then we could read them and, and kind of have that as a rallying point. Exactly. Um, together, yeah. which I think is super important. Uh, okay. So how did you, so you've been, you know, you've been studying and writing. Why did you decide to write Jesus and John Wayne? Like where did, where did that come from? And how, did, how did that kind of make you go? I've got to, I've got to write this. So this goes back many years, uh, more than 15 years ago, I was a new faculty member at Calvin and I was teaching a U.S. survey class and I wanted to introduce my students to uh, the study of gender, to how gender worked in history, uh, how ideas of masculinity and femininity changed over time and how they weren't just connected to kind of personal life decisions or personal relationships, but to broader historical themes like foreign policy, uh, American power, things like that. So um, I had this little lesson that I designed about Teddy Roosevelt and how Teddy Roosevelt embraced what was called a muscular uh, kind of Christianity and this militant conception of of, of American manhood, imperial manhood. Um, And after I gave that lecture, uh, at the end of class, a couple guys from the class came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book you have to read. And it was John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. Uh, So this is back in, I think, 2005 or 2006. And I took their advice and I read it and I saw exactly what they were talking about on on the first page, Eldridge quotes uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and goes on to sketch a very militant and militaristic (laughs) conception of Christian manhood. Uh, And in that just caught my attention at that time, this was the beginning of the Iraq war. And we saw um, all the survey data and how white evangelicals more than any other Americans were supportive of the Iraq war of preemptive war in general, condone the use of torture and embrace the very aggressive foreign policy. And so right then I just asked, you know, what does this militant conception of masculinity have to do with this aggressive foreign policy? And uh, that's actually the roots of this book. I ended up setting it aside for a time. Other things came up and uh, I was also plagued by this question of the things that I was discovering uh, as I looked into evangelical conceptions of masculinity uh, were really disturbing, deeply misogynistic, often violent. Uh, And so I wasn't sure uh, if what I was looking at was some fringe movement or if it was mainstream. And if it was a fringe movement, I thought as a Christian, should I be um, drawing attention to this? Should I be holding this up for all to see? Uh, Or is that somehow you know, detrimental to the faith. Is that, is that appropriate? Um, I, I've since, since come to kind of regret that decision or at least acknowledge that, that I don't think, um, you know, it was a, it was a good instinct actually to, to try to protect and protect the brand, so to speak, rather than just following where my research was leading me. Uh, And then it was in the fall of 2016, 
when I saw uh, a lot of uh, evangelicals um, supporting Trump. And then I heard the language they were using to defend their support for Trump. And it was very um, gendered language. He was a strong man, a protector who would defend their interests, protect Christianity. And uh, I thought immediately of the research I had done of, of reading very similar language um, in all kinds of books on Christian masculinity and Christian manhood. And so it was at that point that I decided to, to pull that research together and bring it up to the present day. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've been disturbed for a while. There's one denomination or once maybe their denomination, I don't know, uh, that like has as part of their logo, it's like a church steeple, but then they've got multiple like things coming down, you know, like your little arrows going up. It looks like a military patch. Like it really does. And I, and I, the the first time I saw it, I went, that looks like military. And then of course we grew up growing, you know, singing onward Christian soldiers and the whole, and the whole thing. So where does all that come from? And is it, is it new or is it like, you know, is it some weird vestige of the, of the crusades that are kind of pouring over into the 21st century or what, like what's, what's, where's that come from? Yeah, here too, you can find continuity and a lot of change. So you could go back to, you know, kind of Constantinian Christianity, to the Crusades. You can, throughout all of Christian history, you can find examples popping up of this very militant understanding of Christianity. Uh but you'll also find the opposite, right? You'll find expressions mm-hmm. of Christianity that are pacifists, that are, you know, uh, empowering to the oppressed and, and so on. So so I don't draw one solid line um, stretching back centuries. For this project, I really focus on, I glance back just briefly to the 19th century as much to say um, things were actually quite different then, even though you can find uh, some precursors to where we end up. I, I do give a quick... You know, glance back to Teddy Roosevelt to set that up in the First World War. But then I really picked things up in the 1940s with the uh, formation of the National Association of Evangelicals, the rise of Billy Graham, and situate this importantly in the Cold War context, because it's then post-World War II that evangelicals kind of band together, strengthen numbers, and they do so around an embrace of uh, Christian nationalism uh, and anti-communism. So communism is a threat to American Christianity and to America itself. And so we need to defend, and that defense is a military one, among other things. Uh, so they come around Christian nationalism and you know, quote unquote, gender traditionalism, the idea that men and women are are very different, and that is men who have been given the duty to protect and defend faith, family, and nation. Um, And so that's where I really kind of start the story. And then I trace that through uh, the Vietnam War, the civil rights era, uh, and all the way uh, through the 80s, the rise of the religious right, uh, and uh, uh, 9-11, war on terror, all the way up to the Trump presidency. What are some things that you point out that are kind of troubling about this and, and whether or not we, you know, where, how that goes? Uh, Well, one of the things when I first started reading books on Christian masculinity, so again, like more than 15 years ago, uh, what caught my eye immediately was how little the Bible was actually engaged in these books. You know, there might be a Bible verse here or there, like ripped out of context, 
but by and large, these uh, ideals of Christian manhood were drawing on uh, secular sources, on Hollywood movies, on mythical warriors. And, and this is where uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart yeah. is a huge favorite. Uh, he comes up over and over again, uh, random soldiers from any of uh, the American wars, General Douglas MacArthur, um, uh, and the actor John Wayne, right? That's that's where the title of my book comes from, that these men, uh, mythical or real, are looked to as models of quote-unquote Christian manhood. And what I saw then is that ends up not just defining what a Christian man looks like, but ultimately that ends up redefining Christianity itself, or as I put it in the book, corrupting Christianity itself. Because you'll get um, you know, the, the explicit rejection of of uh, central uh, kind of biblical teachings, like love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. I mean, they explicitly yeah. say, nah, nah, I know. can't do that. How do we can't do that? Do be a Christian man, uh, right? You know, that's for the ladies or that's, you know, that's all well and good, but yeah, not for this moment. Uh, and, and so those are the, some of the teachings that I was like, okay, wait a minute, right? Because these these are being, uh, these ideas are being packaged and sold by quote unquote Bible believing Christians, yet they are so blatantly rejecting core biblical teachings. And and mm. that's that's where, you know, as a historian, as a cultural historian, I, I needed to explain and understand what was actually motivating uh, and informing uh, the faith of, um, of these self-professed Christians. Yeah. Wow. See that right there, what you just highlighted bothers me to no end. Like I'm, I'm I don't, I'm not really prophetic in the sense that I like can't get things in my soul and I can't let them go. But the one thing where, where that will happen is, is this, like, if you are teaching something, calling it the Bible, calling it the Christian faith, and it's not leading people to maturity in Christ. It, it, I'm infuriated. Like it just, it just like, I just, it makes me so frustrated and so mad because especially for pastors, right? Like this is your job. Your job is to, your job is to lead people to maturity in Christ. So you, you can't reject all those things. And then when you call it the Bible, so like, what are there some ways um, that you, that stood out to you that we're, we're, we say, Oh, this is biblical masculinity or biblical Christianity, but they're really not? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of uh, evangelical writers have located things like aggression as at the heart of, um, of Christian manhood, that because God filled men with testosterone, that proves that men are called to be aggressive and violent when necessary, and uh, and they better fulfill that role, again, as protectors of faith, family, and nation. And, uh, and so you can extrapolate all kinds of things and justify all kinds of things, uh, if that's your starting point, instead of having uh, an understanding, say, of sin and how sin might corrupt and how sin might turn things like testosterone towards uh, not very Christian ends. And that, you know, Christians too, it's uh, a lot of evangelicals have really bought into a very us versus them mentality that God is on our side, you know, my side. And therefore anything that I do 
is righteous and is justified and must be pursued and the ends will justify the means instead of having a very healthy dose of uh, self-criticism, of introspection and understanding how, uh, you know, the, how sin runs through all of us and how easy it is for any of us to fool ourselves into thinking that we are on the side of, of, of righteousness and that therefore God is always on our side. Yeah. Right. God is always on our side. I, yeah, totally, totally agree. I can see all of that. Um, yeah. Fascinating. I'm curious. So you, you ended up staying in, in the Dutch reformed tradition, right? Yeah. Uh, how, yeah. how did that, uh, is that because it was kind of different and not too evangelically focused or what, like influence or how'd that work? I think in part because I, I do have an appreciation for tradition. And so uh, even though some of my writing might mm. seem rather iconoclastic, I do uh, have a respect for uh, kind of, you know, staying where you're planted, uh, at least uh, unless strong reason to do otherwise. I, I continue to resonate with particularly the intellectual side of, mm. of my tradition. And again, finding a home church within the denomination that, uh, that I absolutely love makes a huge difference here too. So I think there's just some pragmatic choices. Uh, and the fact that I ended up landing a job at Calvin University, which is within that Doesn't tradition. Hurt, yeah. and, and so it really keeps me in that orbit. Uh, it would be hard not to be, well, in fact, I mean, we have some uh, guidelines for church membership. That's part of the terms of my employment. So I suppose there's that too, although uh, I haven't felt too constrained um, by that. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've stayed within that, I guess, in part by uh, happenstance and then also um, just continuing to connect with that tradition personally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Okay. So one of the questions I know that people are going to ask me uh, that's going to come up when I post this on social media is, okay, is this, is this kind of I don't know a better word, like deconstruction of sort of biblical masculinity. Can I, if I can say it that way, yeah, right? Yeah. Biblical masculinity. I'm uh -huh. doing air quotes. Um, is that really just feminism yes. and liberalism? I'm sure you've addressed this a lot, but I know I'm going to get it. So uh -huh. like, what, is that what it is or is it something else? Uh, right. That, uh, interestingly, I haven't been posed that question in precisely that way. Uh, so is this just feminism or is this just liberalism? Yeah, I like to think of this as, as first of all, just history. Mm. Uh, so read this history, right? And then, and then I think that the, the history that I present is going to explain why that question is being asked. Uh, so this history is going to explain how this conception of quote unquote biblical masculinity, which I've already stated is not very biblical. Uh, and there's engagement with biblical theology, but uh, I would say it, it's not one of the more prominent influences, uh, how that was formed in a particular historical moment in opposition to feminism and quote unquote, secular humanism or liberalism in the 1960s and 1970s. So that is part of the story. Uh, for me as a historian, I'm telling that story. I don't actually come out in this book and say, here's what biblical masculinity looks like. Oh, yeah. Um, but I have been asked, uh, right? I'm, I'm a historian. That's not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a psychologist or a biologist or anything, you know, so I, I really try to stay in my disciplinary lane. I'm going to tell you this history and then what you do with it is, is kind of up to you. But, but when pushed and people say, well, what is biblical 
uh, manhood? What does it look like? What should it look like? Um, and one of the places that I point people to is um, the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. You know, let's, uh, in the literature that I have studied, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control are largely um, regarded as feminine virtues. <laughs> and of course, that is absolutely anti-biblical to present them as such. Uh, so I would say any kind of biblical masculinity should probably start there. Uh, it should start with, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, as any kind of biblical femininity should also start there. Um, and so I think that evangelicals in recent decades have overemphasized uh gender difference when in fact uh the scriptures you know the vast majority of verses in the bible are written to followers of christ to women and men alike yeah absolutely i love that about the holy spirit or the fruits of the spirit i've been sort of ruminating on that lately because yeah i think it's lost a little bit also i had um uh scott mcknight and laura Beringer of the, the uh, church called tove and so the, the whole idea of goodness. I've been like, oh, that's, yeah, that we need to get that back. So I've been ruminating on Fruit of the Spirit. Oh, I love that book. Uh, it's so good. So good. So uh, friends, you can check that out. And uh, interesting. So this is kind of a theme, I guess, that's coming out. I wonder, it's an interesting time, I guess. Perhaps this is part of uh, the church's reaction to the Me Too movement and some some of the things. You've, we've got, uh, um, you know, Amy Bird writing about recovering from biblical manhood, womanhood, and then this kind of giving, you given the history, which I think is cool too. Wow. Interesting. Okay, I'm gonna have to try to pull all those threads together in my own in my own head in the next few uh, few weeks. Um, I love that. Well, so the book is called Jesus and John Wayne: How Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, and its history. It looks. It, it's. I've had a chance to glance through it, but not read the whole thing. But it looks amazing, and it's and people are talking about it. And like you said, going, oh, that's exactly my my experience. Um, I also thought it was interesting that uh, just last night, uh, sadly, Carmen passed away. So that's another like masculine, like kind of, you know, whole, whole world. Right. Yeah. Um, fascinating. So that's, that's good. Well, so friends, you can get the book at any place you get books, local bookstores, or of course the, the big behemoth. I've got um, links at halfway there podcast.com where you can get uh find Christian's website as well as uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Kristen, um, I really appreciate the way that you were kind of prompting us to think about about this, and it's always good to talk to a fellow Iowan. Is uh, do you anything you want to leave us with? Oh no, I just um, you know thank you for this conversation, and uh, and and thank all of the evangelical readers who have already uh, read Jesus and John Wayne and who have embraced it with such remarkable humility and openness, um, particularly conservative white evangelical men. I continue to be inspired by my readers and uh, what they are telling me and what they are um, saying to each other. Uh, And again, just a huge shout out to uh, the humility and openness with which so many are engaging this this work of history. It's it's really inspiring. Mm, I love that. Yeah, humility. I don't know if it shows up as one of the mar- one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, but it most certainly is, right? I love that, uh, Kristen. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. 